It's good to be with you all. Um, Brooke and I have spent a lot of time on the road, my wife Brooke and I lately, and it's a beautiful summer. We covered a bunch of territory, and one of the things we saw uh, was a lot of baby calves and a lot of baby lambs. I don't know if you guys have ever seen baby lambs jumping around, but it reminded me of this story I want to share with you. I grew up on a ranch in north central Montana, so baby calves and baby lambs have a special place in my life, but they're bucking around and playing around. I heard this story one time <clears throat> about this fellow, really successful rancher who had a lot of uh, lambs, a lot of sheep, and uh, many, 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 very wealthy, and, uh, but near a small town, and in that small town, there was a uh, bum, a homeless person, who only had one lamb. And uh, you know how people get really attached to animals? Maybe some of you are really attached to your dog or your goldfish or whatever it is. But this homeless person was really attached to his lamb. And his lamb would eat with him. You know how it's kind of cute, kind of gross, how people feed their pets sometimes. He would eat with him and he would sleep with him. He would curl up with him and keep him warm. And he was very, very dear and very, very special to him. It was his only lamb. And uh, one of the rich man's friends came into town, and uh, per tradition, they were supposed to kill a lamb to eat. And uh, that rich man was so stingy that he didn't kill his lamb. You know, what he did is he took that homeless person's lamb, his precious dear little lamb, and took it and killed it. How do you feel about that? Faith? It's sad. Anybody else? Anyone outraged? What if I told you the people in that story had a name? The rich man's name is David, and the poor man's name is Uriah. Okay, and the story comes to us in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And you know what I just told you? It's a parable. It's a parable, and you're going to hear this word a lot this summer. Parable. Okay, we're going to cover a lot of parables this summer. If you don't have a handout... Um, I think there's probably some more in the back, unless it looks like it didn't quite make enough. Um, but parables are what we're going to cover. Okay, so just like there's a rich man and a poor man, that's not a real story. Did you catch on to that? I made that story up. We really did see lambs when we were driving, but I made the rest up. Okay. A parable is not a true story, but it's used to illustrate effectively the point, I think. Don't you? But uh, before we talk about what parables are, we're going to spend tonight talking about parables. Why parables, what parables are, as you can see from your sheet, what are parables not. So before we talk about what they are, let's talk about what they're not. <clears throat> okay, a parable is not a simile, um, but it is a comparison. So in John 15, for example, Jesus says, I am a vine, I am the vine, I am the true vine. And, uh, and he makes a comparison, a simile. He does this a lot in Scripture. Okay, uh, uh, a parable is not a simile, but it is a comparison. A parable is not a hyperbole. What's a hyperbole? A hyperbole is an exaggerated um, picture or illustration. Okay, we have the example of a mustard seed in Luke 17.6, where Jesus says, if you, have a faith, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can tell this mulberry must move, it'll move into the ocean. A parable is not an allegory, but some parables contain allegory. Okay, some parables contain allegory. So this was a mistake that the early church made. They would see these parables and they would allegorize everything in the parable. So you know the parable of the, uh, 
of the prodigal son. And they would say, rather than getting the big concept of the prodigal son, they would say, well, the robe they put on him, that's Christ's righteousness. And the ring, that's the sacraments and the sandals. Those are the sandals of righteousness. And they would uh, allegorize everything. Okay, So a parable is not a simile. It's not a, a hyperbole. And it's not an allegory. But it does sometimes contain allegorical statements. If that's what a parable is not, what is a parable? Okay, what is a parable? If you look at your sheet there, you'll see the word parabole. Okay, the word, uh, the Greek word's parabole, and para means to come alongside or to lay alongside, and bole means to throw or to cast. So literally what we have is casting or throwing something alongside. You get the picture for a comparison. And it's, uh, I love this, I love this a description. It's from Strong's Concordance. It says, a pithy and instructive saying involving some likeness or comparison and having preceptive or admonitory force. What's preceptive? Not perceptive, but preceptive. That means it has precepts for us to follow. Okay? It's teaching or didactic. It also means that it has admonitory force. What does that mean? It means that it's meant to admonish us, to push us, to teach us, to challenge us. Okay? That's what parables are. Um, and that makes sense, doesn't it? We, t- we tend to remember word pictures or illustrations or stories pretty well. I want to ask the question, who told parables? Who spoke parables? Well, we already know one, don't we? In 2 Samuel 12, Nathan spoke a parable. So parables aren't unique to Jesus. Jewish rabbis spoke parables. Pharisees often spoke parables to illustrate Old Testament concepts or laws or even traditions. Okay? So parables have been around a long time. Um, But what I want to get to tonight is that Jesus used parables in a really unique way. Why? Well, because Jesus, as you know, is a very unique person. That word probably unique doesn't do it justice. But when Jesus spoke, listen, when Jesus spoke, people listened. They paid attention. When Jesus spoke, it wasn't like any other man speaking. How do we know that? Scripture tells us. I want you to turn to John 7 for an example with me. John 7. In John chapter 7, look at verse 45 with me. I'm going to describe this a little bit more in a minute, but I want you to just start in verse 45. It says this, The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to him, Why did you not bring him? Who's him? Jesus. Why didn't you bring him? And how did they respond? This is pretty incredible. Officers said, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. Never has a man spoken the way this speaks. NASB has never has a man spoken like this. King James, if you like, says never a man spoke or never a man spake like this. Okay. No one ever spoke like Jesus did. Jesus was unique in his authority and his illustrations. And we see this all through Scripture. Well, why would the officers say this? Why would they say no one ever spoke like this? His go and hear, and it was his tone, his inflection. He was a really dynamic speaker. I don't think so. Here's why. Look at verse uh, 37 with me. It says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out. And stop there. On the third day of what? The third day of the Feast of Booth or the Feast of the Tabernacles. It's an Old Testament feast. Okay, much of their celebrations were around feasts, around Jewish tradition holidays. This was day three. So Jesus has been there three days already and he's stirring up some controversy. But what's about to come out of his mouth 
isn't just controversial, it's earth-shattering. Let me explain why. Okay, on the third day of the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles, they would bring in, they'd have this huge march. And the priest would bring in this silver goblet of water. And they'd enter in, and they'd come in through the water gate, which is a big public gate in Jerusalem. And they'd parade through, and a big feast, and they'd sound three trumpet blasts. And they'd quote from Isaiah, and it was this huge thing. They'd go and they'd pour the gold, or they'd pour the water out of the gold uh, vessel in the back of the temple as a symbol, uh, as symbolism to celebrate or to thank God for the water and the crops and all these things. So with that in mind, look at what Jesus says to him. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And Jesus used pictures and illustrations all the time. And you can imagine how controversial it would have been if someone stands up in the midst of this big feast and there's this celebration and parade and there's all this symbolism around water and Jesus says, are you thirsty? Come to me. I'll give you living water. Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Listen, no one spoke like Jesus did. No one said what he did and no one did it with the authority that he did. You know what we see after three chapters in Jesus' most famous sermon, the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7? through 7? Matthew 7, 45 and 46 reads this way. When Jesus had finished these words, when he had finished all these words, we just have a fraction of them, but he's standing there and he's, he's speaking the Sermon on the Mount. It says, when he finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, not as the scribes. So why, Tanner, are you going to lengths to establish the fact that Jesus speaking was unique? I think it's important in our day and age or in any day and age because, listen, when I say the name Jesus, there's a lot of confusion. Okay? I want you to see this God, man, the lion and the lamb, is completely different than the popular cultures perceived him. Okay, so when I say the name Jesus in public, probably what comes to people's mind is something entirely different than what the Bible describes. Jesus was bold and he was compassionate. He wept over people with tears. He warned them with his words and he washed people with his blood. Jesus was unique, not just unique. He was the God-man. And when he spoke, people shut up and listened. People came from all over just to hear him speak. They said, this man speaks with authority. And so I think what better way to spend our summer, right, than looking at what Jesus said, how he spoke, and what he said, and how he said it. So when I say parables, you're going to hear that word a lot. When I say parables, don't merely think earthly story with heavenly meaning. Okay, you've heard that description a lot probably. It is that, but it's so much more. When I say parables, think son of God. Think authority speaking and teaching and admonishing. And the frequencies of parables, they, they increase all throughout Scripture. The more Jesus goes, the more He teaches, the more parables He gives. I want you to turn to Matthew 13 to look at this. Okay, go over to the Gospel of Matthew, the first Gospel, and go to chapter 13. And look at verse 34 and 35. While you're turning there, I want you to hear this. The word parable is used 48 times in the first three Gospels. Okay, and we have 39 individual examples of parables. We're obviously not going to cover them all this summer. But I want you to know and to see, so you have homework to do on your own and read. There's parables galore. 
and they're rich and they're pregnant with meaning. Okay, look at 13, verse 33, verse 34, excuse me, verse 34. It says, All these things Jesus spoke to the crowd in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what the prophet, or what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. He's quoting Psalm 78 to Jesus spoke at some times exclusively in parables. And in chapter 13, where we're going to look at tonight, he spoke nine parables. He says he didn't speak to him without a parable. Okay? So I want to ask the question, why parables? It's a fair question, isn't it? Jesus gives nine parables in Matthew chapter 13, and his disciples ask, why? Why parables? So I want you to go to the beginning of the chapter and look at verse 1 and 2 with me. That day, so this is a new day, that day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. Why was he sitting by the sea? Well, we're about to see. And large crowds gathered to him, and he got into a boat and sat down. The whole crowd was standing on the beach. What's going on here? People come from miles and miles and miles around just to hear him speak. And uh, I got to go to Israel a few years ago and stand where they think this beach was and see. And there's almost a natural backdrop, okay? Almost stadium seating. As you can see the boat casts out on the water a little bit. And his voice echoes across the water. And, and it goes to all these people on the beach, and people are standing there watching and listening intently because no one speaks like Jesus speaks. No one speaks like the Son of God speaks. And in verses 3 through 9, he gives a parable that most of you, if not all of you, are familiar with. And it's the seed and the sowers. Okay, the seed and the sowers. And we don't have to interpret this parable. He interprets this parable for us in 16 through 23. But we're not going to look over that parable tonight. Okay? I want to skip the seed and the sowers or the parables of the soils and I want you to look at verse 10. Right in the middle of the parable, actually after he tells the parable and before he explains the parable, the disciples ask a question. I think it's a good question. The disciples came and said to him, verse 10, why do you speak to him in parables? Why? What, what's the deal? Why all these illustrations? Why all these parables? Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. What are the mysteries? What are the mysteries? Okay, this word mysteries, it, it appears 27 times in the New Testament. And every time it's talking about the same thing. Okay? Old Testament revelation, disguised and hidden, and now revealed, now understood, because of life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. So, used to be disclosed, now revealed. Word mystery. So Jesus says, the, the disciples say, why parables? Jesus says, well... Uh, to you it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. So he wants them to know. So he's going to illustrate the kingdom of heaven in parables. What are these mysteries? We see these mysteries all throughout the New Testament. Okay, Romans 9 through 11 talks about the mystery of the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews thought, man, we're exclusive as Jews. We're God's chosen people. We're the only ones. Uh, God opens a brighter. Christ says, I have sheep that are not of this fold, of this flock. Now we have Gentiles in the church. Ephesians 5, we see the mystery of Christ in the church. We see the real institute of marriage and why there is marriage. It's to illustrate Christ in His church. We see the fact that there's going to be a rapture, a catching up of the church. That's a mystery. We see that God is incarnate. Okay, That was a mystery for them that is now revealed and understood better. But I want to hone in on two reasons. Two reasons for parables. Okay, The first is this, as we read. 
Verse 11a, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. The first reason is blessing or mercy. God gave parables as an illustration to the disciples to help them know and to help them understand. And these ways of speaking parables was a way to connect and to admonish and to teach the disciples and other believers great truths about the Word of God. Okay? In this case, in the parable of the seed and the sowers, to teach them about uh, the dissemination of the gospel. These parables are easy to be remembered, and they've been used by the disciples, no doubt, later on to illustrate and to teach these same truths to other people. I want to read you something that I think is helpful uh, by John MacArthur's commentary on the parables. It says this, Teaching through parables and other figurative means is effective because it helps make abstract truth more concrete, more interesting and easier to remember and easier to apply to life. When a truth is externalized, in the figures of a parable, the internalizing of moral and spiritual meaning is much easier. What does that mean? Parables make it easier. They help us. They help us to understand things. I was talking to a young man over breakfast just the other day, and he said, when I was a new Christian, I had a hard time understanding the parables. He said, I'd read through the Gospels, and I'd think, what is Jesus talking about? Any of you have been there? Yeah, if you're honest, you have been. But when you begin to see and understand, you see Jesus explain, describe some of these parables, or you sit under teaching, you see these parables, you begin to remember them well. I bet some of the best things, some of the things you remember most clearly in Scripture are parables. So Jesus was doing them a serious favor here, revealing mysteries and helping train with training devices. But I want you to keep in mind this summer, number two, reason number two is judgment. Judgment. Look at the rest of verse 11. It says, but to them it has not been granted. Verse 12, for, for whoever has... Him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Second reason is judgment. As Warren Wearsby says, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. These parables proved as hardening devices for those who are stuck in unbelief. And they reaped, they reaped the consequences of their unbelief. So these parables, and this was, this was new to me and to understand, honestly, as I studied the parables in preparation for this summer. Parables came as judgment. And what they have, that is life and God's forbearance and patience, instead of cutting them off, what they have, verse 12 tells us, will one day be taken away. And it will result in eternal punishment. Okay? These parables came also as judgment. Because they don't hear, they don't see, and they don't understand. The words of Jesus were like rain on a tin roof. People liked to listen to it. They thought it was really fascinating, really beautiful. Wow, no one speaks like this. What should we do with this? It's an incredible noise, incredible fascinating thing. They didn't do anything about it. These people stood judged by these same parables. Second Timothy 3.7, talking about people in the last time, I think aptly applies to this situation. It says, always learning and never coming to a knowledge of the truth. And you can see these people sitting on the shoreline listening to this information. Alistair Begg describes it. You can probably hear people going around, I really like listening to this guy speak. But I don't know about his application. What does he mean calling sinners to repentance? What does he mean taking up your cross? I don't know about that. Rain on a tin roof. And then he quotes verse 14. It says, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, 
but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive, for the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, otherwise they would see with their eyes. And hear with their ears, and it's a tragedy, isn't it? That's a sad thing. When the Word of God is spoken, when the Word of God is spoken, sometimes it stands in judgment. This is quoted from Isaiah 6.9, and most of you probably know how Isaiah 6 starts. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on His throne. Okay, but before that, in the previous chapters, Isaiah is decreeing a series of judgments on the nation Israel for turning against God. And after King Uzziah dies, who was a pretty decent king, the nation lapses into some of its darkest and dreariest days. It's a sad thing. And the first fulfillment of that prophecy was in Isaiah 9. Seven times, I believe, it's quoted in the New Testament. And the fulfillment was yet to come with Israel. Because dark days for them was ahead. God has the ability to help someone understand Scripture. And in His sovereignty, He helps us understand Scripture. That's why I believe the psalmist in Psalm 119.8 says this, Open my eyes to behold wonderful things from Thy law. And that's what we ought to pray, isn't it? Are you in God's Word? Are you understanding wonderful things? Are you taking it in daily? How's the summer going for you this far? We're taking a month off. What's it been like? Really good? Really sweet? Sweet times in the Word? Difficult? Somewhere in between? I don't know, but I know if you're here tonight, tonight's a good time to pray. Open my eyes to behold wonderful things from Your law, O Lord. That's a good starting point. In verse 9, right before where we started in verse 9, or in verse 10, Jesus says this, He who has ears, let him hear. Let him hear. Open up your ears and hear. So the invitation is open. Okay, so lest we think that God hasn't given these people a fair chance. So I was thinking about this. I was reminded of Ezekiel 33.11. says this, Say to them, says Ezekiel the prophet, As I live, declares the Lord, no, I, take, I have no pleasure, God speaking, or Ezekiel speaking for God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live, turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for you will die, or will you die, O house of Israel? God doesn't take delight in judgment, but in His justice, He performs judgment. Okay? So if you have ears to hear, hear this summer, hear tonight, listen, listen to God's Word. Now mark this, hearing God's Word, and tonight is no exception, hearing God's Word is never a static event. What do I mean by that? Every time you hear God's Word, you're either growing in grace by believing, or you're growing in condemnation by denying. So as you come here tonight, you don't just come to chess club. You come to sit under God's Word, and two things happen. One of two things happen. No static. Nobody stays the same here tonight, okay? Either you grow in grace and knowledge by believing, or you grow in condemnation by denying. That's the facts. And so as you sit under God's Word tonight, you have to decide for yourselves where do you stand. And so that's the introduction to the series. That's where we look at the series and when we ask what are parables, why parables. As summer, as we look at parables, as you hear and see God's Word, I pray that you'd respond in faith to it. I split this message tonight into two parts. Okay, First, why parables? And second, we're going to look just briefly at a parable. I want to get kicked off. I want to get going to these parables. There's 39. We're not going to hit them all, but we're going to hit a few. Okay? So I want you to turn to Luke 7 with me. Luke chapter 7. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and go to chapter 7. Lord, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. 
Luke chapter 7. You'll see on your sheet there, and this may be more confusing than helpful. I split it into, uh, into some parts there. Look at my outline. I have uh, or sinner to Savior, Simon to sinner and Savior, Savior to Simon and Savior to sinner. It's a tongue twister. And I want it to be helpful, not confusing. So if it's confusing, just set it to the side. But I think as we work through this, you'll see that outline can be helpful and it'll help you remember what's going on. Okay. First, we have sinner to Savior. I want to look at verse 36. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting or asked him to dine or eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. We learn from verse 40 that this uh, Pharisee was Simon, a man who doesn't appear to have very good motives for, uh, for inviting Jesus to his home. He's probably motivated to trap Jesus. We don't want to believe the worst, but that's what <laughs> seems to be occurring here, working Jesus into a trap. Maybe he just wants to learn more about Jesus, but he invites him into his home nonetheless. In verse 37, Behold, a woman of the city or a prostitute who is a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. How'd this woman find out? Nobody texted her. Nobody Facebooked her and said, hey, Jesus can be at Simon's house tonight. Be there. But stuff got around, didn't it? Because Jesus, people knew where Jesus was. And Simon was probably a well-known Pharisee, and he has this party, and he invites Jesus. I don't know how many people were there, but apparently... She knew, and she find out. She knew right away what she must do. And she was really willing to risk a lot of social persecution for this, wasn't she? She was a woman of the city. She was a prostitute, despised and used. I want you to understand the parties of, today, of, of that day. It's not like a party we'll have tonight where, uh, where we have people here and we're going to eat watermelon afterwards. These parties were exclusive in one sense and open in another sense. So they'd sit and they'd recline. They'd lay around a low-lying table Okay, and the, the party guests were around the table, but people were free to come and go or to watch or even interact with a guest some. So what we have is this woman, a woman of the city, a prostitute, maybe dressed in drags, comes in, and she opens up an alabaster jar of ointment and perfume. She was willing to sacrifice a monumental financial burden to bless and anoint Jesus. And Luke doesn't tell us how much this jar of ointment or perfume costs. But in Mark 14, Mary brings what is perhaps a similar jar of alabaster perfume to Jesus. And if you remember, Mary anoints Jesus' head with a perfume. And it tells us there that the cost is 300 denarii, or a year's wages. Pick whatever wage you want, sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 in one bar, or one jar of alabaster perfume. The jar would have been costly itself. It would have been from Egypt, marble, carved and made especially for this purpose. And verse 38, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. What a graphic picture. What a poignant picture. Washing feet was the duty not even of the lowest slaves in the day. No one had to wash feet. Not even the servants. But it was customary to bring water to someone so they could wash their feet. The feet of a man traveling in those days, they wouldn't have been pretty. I see some of you gals and guys wearing sandals here tonight. You got your pedicures and your French dip nails and your pretty feet. It wouldn't have been that way in those days. The girls are surprised I knew what French dip nails were, weren't you? You know, a wife. And, uh, 
The feet weren't pretty. They were calloused and ugly, dirty and muddy from traveling around. And Simon doesn't give her any water. Bawling in gratitude, we have this graphic picture of her taking her hair and wiping down Jesus' feet. I've been to some foot washings at weddings. I'm sure you have too. I even helped pull a couple off uh, by surprise of the bride. I think she was happy when it happened. I don't know. I didn't ask her later. But I've never seen a guy or a gal let their hair down or a girl take her pretty bridal hair and take it and wash dirty feet with it. Not, not only does she clean him and wash him, but she anoints him with very expensive perfume and ointment. Now imagine this caused quite a scene, didn't it? If not just the sight of it, the smell of it. As she opened up this very expensive ointment, people would have been able to smell and it caused quite a scene. So much so that in verse 39, we have Simon to the sinner and Savior. Verse 39, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of this woman, what sort of woman this was who was touching him. For she is a sinner. It's typical self-righteousness, isn't it, of the Pharisees? You don't let bad people touch you. You got this elitist group at a party. They're sitting there reclining around the table. And what kind of mess is this woman making? How did she even get in here? What is she doing? What a sobbing, swirling mess of tears and perfume and ointment. What is this? Simon's trying to throw a decent party. You'll notice it's something he said to himself in his own mind, but Jesus answers him in verse 40. Simon says, or this Savior Christ, Jesus, says to Simon, he answers him and says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon says, say it, teacher. Verse 41, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more, he asked Simon. That's one of the most simple and shortest parables we'll look at this summer. But don't mistake its brevity for lack of beauty and impact. This goes deep. And the beautiful thing I think about parables is you can see yourself in parables, can't you? There's a mirror in parables, and I think if you look carefully, you can identify yourself. A simple parable. Two men, both of them are in debt. One 500, one 50. 500 denarii, it's almost two years of wages. Okay? Upwards of $130,000. Pick your number. Hundreds of thousands of dollars this person is in debt. He goes to him to try and pay the debt. He says, ah, forget about it. What? Forget about it. What? I owe you money. I owe you hundreds of thousands of dollars. What? Forget about it. The debt has been paid. And the same for the 50 denarii, about two months of wages. Significant money, thousands of dollars. But nothing compared to the hundreds and thousands of dollars that the first person owed. And both are pretty grateful guys, aren't they? You'd be grateful, I'd be grateful. But it doesn't take a genius to figure out which and whose exuberance will be more pronounced, whose love will be more obvious. And so Simon obviously answers in verse 43, the one I suppose to whom is counseled the larger debt. And he said to him, Simon, you've judged rightly. Then turning, turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her own hair. He turns towards the woman, but he's talking to Simon. It would have been customary, as I mentioned, to give someone water, simple enough when they come in to wipe their feet, to wash their feet. He didn't give her water. 
but the woman of the city made her own water with her tears. Verse 45, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. There's an obvious greater than, less than theme running through these verses. That's why it's important to understand our sin, isn't it? The parable is obvious. She knew that she was a sinner. She'd been called a sinner. She'd been seen as a sinner. She's named in the text as a sinner. She knew it. It was obvious to her. Her sin was on the outside. It was obvious. But Simon's was hidden. I love how Wearsby put this. He says, It's too bad that this woman fell into sin, but it's even worse that Simon was living in sin and did not know it. It's even worse that Simon was living in sin and did not know it. And I ask you tonight, where's your sin? Do you know it? Do you see it? Do you recognize that you're a sinner? Have you seen it? Have you confessed it? Are your sins forgiven? Where's yours? There's a good example of this just this morning. Before six, or before seven in the morning, a guy came in this morning to the church on methamphetamines. He had a child who was only, it wasn't even a year or a month old yet. Didn't have a diaper, hadn't been fed. And it would have been easy, wouldn't it, for someone to see that man and go, what are you doing here? You're a mess. You've got a needle wound in your arm. Where's the mom? Why aren't you guys taking care of this? Get out of here. And praise God, people didn't do that. Praise God, people were able to minister to him and to get his number. And if you think of it, pray for him. But it's a similar situation, isn't it? If you think this is foreign, if you think this is just some abstract situation in Scripture, think again, this happens all the time. Think about cross life. What if somebody comes in here with piercings all over their body, both sleeves tattooed, looking funny? What do you do? What do you think? What if someone comes in here that's different than you? What if someone who's in an adulterous relationship comes into here? What do we do? How do you think of them? Do you minister to them? Do you call them to repentance and faith? What if someone comes in who's in homosexuality, who's in a homosexual relationship? What do you do? Do you say, Ick, get out of here. We don't have room for you. We don't have a place for you. We don't have a category for you. What do you do? Do you cast an eye or do you minister? Do you pray or do you condemn? If you think this situation is foreign, it's not. And if you think the pharisaical attitude is not in my heart or not in yours, I encourage you to look. Probe deeply. Do you see your sin? Are you able to be objective enough and look at it? And if not, a good homework, if you're taking notes, if you want to write this down, go to Exodus 20 where God gives the law and hold your life up to the law and pray that He would help you see that you're, you're 500 denarii in debt. You're big time under, or you were big time under, if you're a believer. And recognizing your huge debt of sin, that that's been paid off, that that's been owed, what should that cause you to do? The illustration's obvious. It should cause you to love much. Verse 48, now we have the Savior to the sinner. Christ turns His attention to the woman of the city. Verse 48, and He said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? It's a fair question, isn't it? 
The answer is obvious. There's only one who can forgive sins, and everyone knew that. Jesus says this several times in the Gospel. Get up, paralytic. Your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees go, who is this cat? Who is this guy? He's forgiving sins? It's one thing to say someone's healed, but it's another thing to forgive sins. Earlier in chapter 5, verse 20, the Pharisees assert, and rightly so, that this kind of language would have been blasphemous had Jesus not been God. This is an assertion of His deity. Make no mistake. Jesus is claiming and showing these people that He's none other than God in human flesh. None other than the God-man, the Lion and the Lamb. He says in verse 50, He said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So just in case there was any doubt as to what pardoned the sinner, whether it was the washing of the feet or the tears or the presence, Jesus clears it up. Friends, only your faith, only faith can save you. No amount of tears or even good deeds or washing feet, none of that will save you. Not even sorrow over sin. Only faith. That's why August Toplady, he wrote this, Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. No tears, no amount of sorrow, only faith. No amount of benevolence, no amount of philanthropy, no amount of good deeds, no amount of good works, no amount of self-righteousness could ever atone. Only faith. And I wonder tonight, friend, do you have faith? I see a lot of new faces I praise God for this summer. I wonder, do you have faith? Do you know the Savior? What can we observe from this parable in closing? Well, a few things. One, that everyone needs forgiveness. Everyone. Okay, there's two debtors and they're both debtors. Everyone's a debtor and everyone needs forgiveness. You may need to repent of self-righteousness. You may need to repent of adultery, whether inward or outward. Simon dwelt on what she had not done and forgot, forgot what he not, had not done. He had not believed. He had not turned to Christ in faith. Do you have faith, friend? These parables are real. They have mirrors in them. And I hope, I hope this summer, hope as men and women work through these parables with you that this is a summer of change and impact and diligence. And it's big for you. And you draw near to Christ and these parables speak into your life not just as simple stories, not just as pithy illustrations, but as words from our Savior, as words from the very God-man, and no one spoke like Him. Nobody. Let's close in prayer. Lord, everyone needs forgiveness, the kindness of a Savior, hope for nations. We need Your Son. And everyone here tonight needs Your Son, whether for forgiveness for the first time or continually coming to give to Him again as He stands at the right hand of the throne and makes intercession for us. Thank You for forgiveness. Lord, may Your forgiveness may make us love much. May we realize that we've been forgiven much and therefore we ought to love much. We ought to love big. We've been forgiven much. May we remember that and see that clearly tonight. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.